Welcome back. Today's episode is all about Graham Nash, the legendary Graham Nash. We're so excited because uh, during the years of the Oral History Project, uh, we have had the opportunity to interview him twice. And uh, today we're going to feature both of those interviews. So let's go over some of his statistics and see how well uh, Dan and Mike here know the life and career of Graham Nash. So um, we know we were discussing earlier right before we turned the tape on about how he is a two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. So who wants to tell us what bands? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and the Hollies. Okay, so Dan gets a point. Ding, ding. Um, Any guesses on the years on those two? Uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. What's your guess? What year were they inducted? I'll take a guess. uh, 2005. I'm going to say before that, late 90s is my guess. You know, surprise, surprise, Dan's the closest. It's 1997. Wow, that's pretty early. Yeah. And the Hollies, this one. uh, I think I know this one. I don't know why, (laughs) but I think it was 2010. Yes. So 2010 for the Hollies. And some other interesting facts about Graham Nash. Um, He was brought in i don't know what the correct term is to the as an officer of the order of the british empire in 2010 is that the same as being knighted uh i tried to read a little bit about it and i'm not 100 percent sure i don't want to go out on a limb either way but it looks like it it's for his charity work uh and musical influence over the years so queen elizabeth you know did the ceremony that's fantastic so i wonder if his title is sir graham nash yeah, that's I, what I don't I'm know. wondering. In our third interview, that should be what we ask him. Yeah. So, good point. Um, Let's do that. Yeah, something else I found interesting about him: he holds four honorary doctorate degrees, doctoral degrees. Hmm. Wow. So, uh, one I only got three universities, but one from the New York Institute of Technology, one from the University of Salford. Sorry if I mispronounced that, and one from Lesley University out in Cambridge. So smart guy. People love him. Clearly. Well, what's amazing is that he keeps reinventing himself as not only a songwriter and a uh, musician, uh, also a vocalist and an author. He uh, came out with his autobiography not long ago. He has uh, taken photographs throughout his career, which now are often in exhibits and galleries around, including one at the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, uh, the April 2017. So an amazing uh, talent for sure. And what we have learned firsthand, all three of us, is what an amazing guy. He really takes the time to uh, connect with people, even if he only has a few short minutes with you. Uh, he uh, really does connect. And um, I found them to be a, an extraordinary human being. So I'm very honored that we have a couple of interviews in our archives. Yeah. And so the first one that we're going to listen to was recorded at the NAM show, which takes place in Anaheim every January, and it was recorded on January 21st of 2016, so fairly recently. Um, it's not super long in content because Graham didn't have a ton of time to spend with Dan, but uh, it's good. It's got a lot of really good stuff, interesting stories. He's a very captivating individual. So let's jump right into that first interview. What a pleasure. Thanks for hanging out. You're welcome, Dan. Appreciate it. So the first thing I got to ask is, you know, it's a big deal for us uh, is the uh, Music for Life Awards. And I uh, would love to hear your thoughts about getting that. 
I, I never got into music to win awards. I, I got into music to meet women. You know, I mean, let's get real. Um, and ha but having said that, the, the older I get, the more I, I think that people want to give back, pay back, whatever. They, every time I'm stopped on the street, you know, I, I get this incredibly warm feeling from people. You know, it's almost like they know me, but, but, but I don't know them, of course, but they know me through my music and through our music. Uh, what an incredibly lucky man I am. Here I am, you know, I'm almost 74. That's why I can call Brian Bell kid, <laughs> as you pointed out. Uh, and I, I live in a country that uh, I think is one of the best countries on earth. It, it certainly does have its problems, as we've talked about. Uh, but there are many wonderful things that go on in this, in this country. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here because I can speak. No one has to listen, but I, ha I have a, a, a small voice. And I'll, I'll use it to, you know, to try and make the world better for me and my family and my friends and everybody else. Fantastic. That's great. In your book, you talked a little bit about seeing the Stratocaster for the first time. I wonder if you could tell us that story. Me and Alan Clark, uh, who later formed the Hollies, uh, had been singing together for, for many years, of course. I've known Alan since I was six years old. We were playing a show in Manchester at the, the Bodega, which was like a lunchtime beatnik kind of coffee club. And me and Alan Clark, with our two acoustic guitars, would, would play a few songs. A guy comes up to him and he goes, you know what, you guys are really good, but you need barking. I do. Barking? What do you mean, barking? What is that? He goes, no, 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 you need Pete barking. I said, okay, well, why would I want Pete barking? He said, because he can play every solo you love. Every solo from every Buddy Holly song, from Gene Vincent song, from Elvis, from Little everything, he can play it. I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I, say, and I said, okay, let's meet Pete Bucking. So we go to this kid's house, and he, he indeed, he had an oblong box. I kind of was feeling, oh my God, I know what the shape of this guitar case is clicked it open, opened it, and there was the first Fender Stratocaster, a sunburst, beautiful Fender. That was probably 1960, 59, 60. Uh, so that was the first Stratocaster I ever saw, and I, I've been in love with them ever since. I love that story because it really is um, echoed in so many other interviews that we have in our collection of people who see an instrument for the first time and really feel like their life has changed. And I know that sounds a little silly, but uh, certainly very clear in Graham's story there. Also, it's kind of fun to think about the fact that um, the Stratocaster was only about nine or 10 years old. So it was still very, very new, uh, certainly in England where it took a little bit longer to get over. Uh, remember he was um, born in uh, Blackpool so uh, I don't believe they actually had a dealer in uh, that area of England, uh, Fender, until the late 1950s. So a uh, very interesting discovery. And for those of us who aren't musicians and maybe just really enjoy listening to music, what's so iconic about the Stratocaster? Well, it's, it's, it's a very recognizable uh, guitar. Um, one of the earlier electric guitars to come out and it was played by 
so many um, important musicians in the past. Like he was talking about Buddy Holly and and all the guys like that. Um, it's it was just and it still is um, an iconic guitar that that everybody seems to want to have. It seems to me like it's the most recognizable guitar shape next to an acoustic guitar, um, and it was the very first. Um, sort of mass-produced, if you will, manufactured solid body. You know, uh, many dealers, uh, early uh, retailers of the electric guitar often said that when the uh, salesman would come, they'd say, what's that plank of wood you're trying to sell us? You know, they weren't used to this thing. Um, it doesn't resonate. You know, wait a minute. It doesn't have a hollow chamber, and the and it wasn't constructed with a hole in it where the sound vibrates. It's completely different. It uses these pickups and requires an amplifier to be heard. And that was a whole new concept for an awful lot of new people. And as Mike pointed out, uh, when people in England in particular were hearing American music for the first time on uh, broadcasts, uh, such as Buddy Holly, it was a huge influence on them. And, and Buddy Holly really kind of goes down in history as uh, a major influence in many of the uh, British invasion uh, participants because uh, he was playing instruments um, that they had never seen before, namely the Strat. Awesome. Let's hear more from uh, Graham. I think next he's going to talk about, you know, where one would go to get such an amazing guitar. So do you remember getting your own first? Um, I do. Uh, right now it's in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, they have an exhibit of, of Graham Nash, of, of my stuff. And uh, my, my early Strat is in there. I think it's 2091, the number of the Strat. So it's pretty early. Uh, yeah, but I, I, it's now it's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How did you get it? Money. I mean, was that a music store? Or? Oh, yeah, 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 a mu music store. I was on the road somewhere in Burning Blankets, Arizona, wherever the hell it was. And I went into this uh, this pawn shop, and there was this beautiful old vendor, so I bought it. That was so many years ago, though. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. I often wonder where Buddy's fender is. You know, it was stolen, you know. and, and, and I wonder where, wonder where it is. With a number, like I mean, you know, he must have had a, a, a small number too. You'd think that would be traceable somehow. Yeah, and I think he got it from Manny's uh, music store in, in New York City. Hmm. We're all musicians, you know. We all need to buy instruments. Well, speaking of Manny's, um, do you have any stories about visiting music stores? Only that it went from the first time I ever really remember looking in a music store in, in, in Manchester, which is where I was from. Uh, there were strange things in there, strange bazookas and strange ocarinas and strange harmonicas. And then one day, an electric guitar was in the window. I can't tell you how many hours I spent in that window with my nose pressed up against the glass hoping one day I could ever afford a guitar like this. And now look at it, you go to, a, you, you go to NAM here, every single thing concerned with music, you can find it here. And there are an incredible link in, in the communication chain between a musician and our audience. If we didn't have all those mu uh, music merchandisers, you know, t to help translate our music into reality for the people out there, we, we, our job would be much more difficult. They're very, very important. These mom and pop stores, as they're called, 
I called that for a very good reason. They're the mother and father of the business. What a great commercial for NAM as well, which is a good opportunity for us to um, say a little piece that uh, this entire collection of interviews is based really on the desire of our membership, the NAM membership over the years, to want to archive their own history, the history of the music products industry. And as a result, we have collected over 3,000 interviews of, as Graham called them, mom and pop shops and um, people who have engineered and and luthiers and folks who have come up with musical products and sold them, uh, salesmen, sales reps, as as well as wholesalers, I mean the whole gamut, um, music publishers, composers, and that huge history has all been uh, funneled into these interviews, which we're very blessed to share portions with you as part of this podcast. And I think it's wonderful that Graham makes a point to recognize mom and pop music sh- music shops. One, I think in this day and age, that sense of small independent retailers, whether it's in the music industry or any facet of the economy is going away um, in favor of online marketplace or large national chains. Um, and then on top of that, when he he mentions, you know, when musicians get big, they, I think they tend to lose connect with that. And he makes sure to recognize them, these small independent retailers for making it possible because everyone has to start somewhere. Yeah. And the, the, the mom and pop stores really are the place where young kids are introduced to music for the first time. And a lot of these retailers um, from the independent stores will make sure that 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 kid is given the right gear. He's he's taking lessons, and he and he really gets into music. And it's it's a great place for anyone um, to really get into music. And it's it's great to see that Graham's talking about that. So before we move on to our next segment, I wanted to say that we kind of uh, going out of sequence in his career, but not to panic. There is a second interview that we're going to be playing a little bit later on that talks about some of the things. Uh, namely, we're, we're skipping right to uh, Neil Young, I believe, in this next segment, and we didn't talk at all about his songwriting and the Hollies, but I know that'll be covered later. So no one panic out there. So tell me about Deja Vu. The album or yeah, what? The, the album. How did that come about? It came about because we had a lot of music to play. We, we were writing crazily, you know, every day, and we had a lot of music, you know, and... Uh, we had made the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record, and that was, uh, you know, quite successful. Uh, and I, uh, quite frankly, I, w- I wasn't sure whether we needed uh, Neil in the band. I'll be honest. I'd never met him. I didn't know him. I didn't know if I could be his friend, if I could tell him secrets. If I, you know, I didn't know Neil. And before uh, we were going to in- invite him into the band, I, I said to David and Stephen, I said, you know, you know him. You know what he's like. I've never met him. Before we invite him into CSN, I've got to meet this guy. Come on. And so that they, they obviously understood that. And I went to breakfast on Bleecker Street with Neil Young and uh, was incredibly impressed with him as a person. Uh, he was very confident. He was very self-assured. He, was, uh, he had this dark sense of humor. Uh, uh, and I said to him at the end of the conversation, at the end of breakfast, I said, so tell me, why should we invite you into this band? And he looked at me and he said, you ever heard me and Stephen play guitar together, man? I said, yeah. He said, that's why you need me. <laughs> that's an answer. 
<laughs> and it fit? It, of course it fit. You know, it, it's very interesting being in, you know, almost four bands at the same time. You know, I'm a solo artist and I'm an artist with David and we have our band and I'm an artist with David and Stephen and we have that band and then I am an artist with David and Stephen and Neil and we have that band. It's like, I'm insanely lucky, man. I, I get to express myself all, all day. It's very important to me. I wish I had that kind of confidence about anything in my life. Have you heard me play guitar? Ooh, that's why you let me in. <laughs> I suppose if you did, then you'd be in CSN as well. I'd be a multi-millionaire, two-time rock and roll fame hall inductee. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Well, it's neat also. I mean, the confidence is one thing, but also the um, the expression of how he felt, Neil, about playing with somebody else, you know, and knowing that that connected so well that Graham would automatically recognize that and I think that's a fantastic element of that band that is why we keep talking about it all these years later. So going on to the next segment um, Graham is going to talk about the importance of music in schools in in his own personal life which I think is something that uh, we're struggling with and our public education system is constantly struggling with keeping music in schools and so it's it'll be a refreshing take. And of course NAM plays a big role in advocating for music education so this was a particular important question to address to him. Another aspect of what NAM is trying to do to encourage people to become music makers is just that accessibility of it as far as being a, a way of expression and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what music means to you and how it helps you express yourself. I think it's been uh, proven by many scientists that if the, if music is in a, a school program, that uh, that kids are less likely to beat each other up or join a gang or turn nasty or you know if music is in their lives and they get they get into music they, they get better grades they get they think better about themselves they have better friends they don't bully they don't jo join gangs it's 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 obvious the sad thing is that in, in a country like america it's very obvious that the first program to go in any school budget cut is the music and the arts programs they never cut the football or the sports programs they cut the music and i think it's a big mistake said. So how would you describe what music means to you? It's my life. I don't know, you know, I often think, you know, what would have happened to me if I hadn't become a musician? And uh, I'd probably be in some insane asylum, you know, wrapped up in a, in a sheet somewhere in a corner. Um, <clears throat> music saved my life. And I, I, I'm constantly aware of that, and I'm constantly in the frame of mind to, to pay back, to give back to what music has given me in my life. That's why, uh, you know, I support the programs that, that put uh, musical instruments into the hands of, kin, uh, of kids. I was just uh, given a humanitarian award from uh, uh, Little Kids Rock in New York where they put thousands of instruments into the hands of kids that don't have the, the, uh, the ability to, to get their hands on an instrument. They're changing people's lives. They're changing kids' lives by the second. Very, very important. So I, I will continue to support people that, that, that uh, put instruments into the hands of children said and you've been doing that for a long time I should mm -hmm. point out yeah absolutely what can you do got to give back a uh, very important element of his career is uh, his songwriting which we are going to be talking about a little bit later 
But I think it's important to bring it up as we uh, introduce this next segment uh, regarding the Everly Brothers. One part that wasn't um, noted in this next discussion I think is very important is um, Graham in the uh, mid-60s really started focusing on themes that he saw around him as part of his uh, songwriting, and not just I'm in love with a girl, uh, but political statements um, with the civil rights movement, of course, uh, going on at that time, the uh, Vietnam War, some other things that were very important to him, of course, came out uh, quite clearly in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, but even earlier than that, he was writing some songs for the Hollies uh, that had political themes, one of which was a tune uh, called um, Signs That Will Never Change that was first recorded by the Everly Brothers. And uh, he talks a little bit about his relationship with the Everly Brothers coming up next. 1960, the Everly Brothers came to Manchester to play a show. Me and Alan Clark decided that we're going to meet them. And we decide that uh, because there's no tour bus there and the, that the nearest best hotel was only 100 feet away, that they're probably staying there. So we went and stood on the steps of the Midland Hotel in Manchester and waited for him to come home. And they did. And what happened in that particular meeting was very important to me. My heroes were calling me by my name. They were recognizing me as a person. It wasn't good kid saying, no, they stood and talked to me and Alan Clark for 20 minutes. It was incredibly important to me at that point in my life. And it changed my life because I realized that if you have uh, somebody that's a hero or that you look up to, if they're a dick, it ruins your day. But if the people that you admire are decent people, it enriches your life. And then you get to be a person that, 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 that recognizes that we all need help because this is an incredibly crazy world and an incredibly difficult life to live. Um, we need all the help we can get. And the Everly Brothers taught me that. Direct contact, a little eye contact, and we've met each other. You're Dan, I'm Graham. We'll move on with our life, but at least we said hello to each other. Yeah, there's nothing more disappointing in life than meeting someone face-to-face -face for the first time that you've looked up to or admired, and then they come off as a jerk, and then it just crushes your whole world right almost. right and it's it's cool to see someone that is a hero to many people um say something like that say that it, it meant a lot for him to meet his heroes so now when he meets his fans you know he treats them with respect and and really does it right right really creates some perception you know then when he's going out there and you know whether it's walking down the street or he's at an event and to really be conscious and cognizant of that fact and make sure that you always put your best foot forward absolutely uh so dan in the interview dan talks next about what are some of graham's goals moving forward after beyond music um what else does he want to do in his life what else does he want to achieve and dan mentioned earlier that he writes a book uh, which was released a few years ago, an autobiography, which uh, from everything I've read online was a huge success and people were dying to get their hands on it. Um, as well as he gets really heavily into photography and the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, actually located right below us right now, um, hosted an exhibit of his photography and we, the three of us, got to check it out and it's amazing. Yeah, for someone who's so well known for music, um, that the photography was just amazing. It was um, professional. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> talk about a talented guy. Yeah. It's amazing to me. I often thought um, content for photography has almost everything to do with it. And I no longer think that, you know, now, yes, of course, taking a picture of Neil Young backstage, that's going to be a great picture, even if I took it. But <laughs> um the lighting and the shadows and the understanding of light that he clearly has has made a lot of those images to me just really pop. Yeah, and there's one downstairs that stuck out to me and it's a portrait of Johnny Cash and the way that he shadows his face and everything. It's not just, oh my gosh, it's a picture of Johnny Cash. It's, oh my gosh, it's a picture of Johnny Cash. Look at the feeling behind it. Like you kind of get a whole bunch of emotion and you get this, you know... I don't know. I got the vibe of like a the tortured spirit that was supposedly Johnny towards the end of his life, and 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 we're gonna hear Graham talk about this next. Um, but he does say that even when he's not doing something related to music, when he's not performing or or or, or writing or anything like that, he still needs to um, be creative and he still needs to express himself and. Um, he, he'll go on to say about how no matter what that is, whether it's photography or drawing or music, um, he just always needs to express himself. Yeah, and he's been recognized a couple, just to plug a couple of his honors uh, for photography, he's gotten a New York Institute of Technology's Art and Technology Medal and, uh, and an honorary doctorate of human letters and the Hollywood Film Festival's inaugural Hollywood Visionary Cyber Award. That was a mouthful. It's pretty impressive. Good for him. I don't know what most of it means, but... If the names mean anything, it's impressive. Then it's, it's pretty impressive. It's impressive. <laughs> Is there something in music that you haven't done that you'd like to do? Wow. I'm sorry for the... 20 second gap I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that there is anything I'd like to do I'd li my only thing that I want to do is keep creating I have to create every day or else I'm, I'm not I'm not very happy I'm I'm quite hard on myself I'm my own worst critic I think uh, but I have to create every day or else I can't sleep and so creating to you is writing playing everything mm. if you see I don't think I'll ever get what they call writer's block. Because if I'm not writing, you know, and if it's not coming, then I'll pick up my camera or I'll pick up my hammer and chisels and attack a piece of marble or I will go and find a great photograph to buy or, or take a decent photograph. I, I have many forms of expression in my life and I'm, I'm a l lucky man because I get to use all of them. How lucky is that? Seriously. I'm still waiting to get found out. <laughs> Strangely enough, that's exactly how I feel. That's, yep. Yeah. That's friendly. What are we doing here? Right? <laughs> supposed to be down the mine or working at the mill. Exactly. <laughs> and if you say it too loud, somebody's going to... Somebody's going to listen and go, excuse me. <laughs> Over here. <laughs> I definitely feel like after that clip that you can... Uh, safely say that Graham Nash is probably not one to take naps and binge watch TV. <laughs> so he's always got to have something going on and producing something. And well, I think some of the greatest uh, musical artists or just artists in general um, are that way, how they can't stop. Because once they stop, it's it, everything's over. You know, they got to keep going in order to, I don't know, not just to express themselves, but just to keep everything moving, to keep 
their their brain going. Right. I think it's a whole different way. I think it's their brain operates in a whole different way. And if they stop, if they take a month off, two months off and do nothing, sit on a beach with an umbrella drink and do nothing, they go stir crazy. And I I think if more people were able to get their brain in that mindset, you would see a lot more innovation and creation out there beyond just the arts community. So to um, take a moment to introduce our next segment, I wanted to just um, explain a little bit why the oral history program has covered so many elements and so many segments of the music products industry, music ed, um, music publishing, as we talked about earlier. And along about um, April of uh, 2017, uh, it was announced that uh, the Parnelli Awards will be coming to the NAM show in January of 2018 and will be hopefully a regular uh, addition to our gathering as an industry. And the Parnellis um, is a celebration of pro-lighting and um, live sound. Uh, sort of the the uh, the roadies and the the guys who climb up in the fixtures and and hang everything, um, the folks that invent those um, um, assemblies as well as the products, pro lighting for example, and um, and to honor them and their contributions and it fits really perfectly in with uh, the tech awards and the milestone awards um, that NAM already presents. Uh, so to me, this is a perfect fit, and I'm really happy about it because for several years we have already been interviewing folks in those segments of our industry uh, and past Parnelli Award winners. So um, in thinking about all of that, I want to collect as many insights from p- professional musicians such as Graham Nash to talk about what they've seen as far as changes in lighting and pro audio. And so I'm really very happy that we had a uh, short discussion with him about that. One other aspect that you know, NAM is really big on is, is a pro audio and, and staging and so on. And there's been so many huge changes in all of that uh, since you first started. And I'd love to get your perspective on you know the, the monitors and, and some of the stuff that you've seen sort of developing. Well, there's been, a, there's been a tremendous change t- technologically in the music industry. And when I first started making records, it was on two track, uh, mono stuff, you know, and now you can have, you know, 10,000 tracks in your iPhone, you know. So the technical uh, part of music has changed dramatically. I still prefer an uh, intimate one-on-one contact. That's why I love to play these smaller halls where I can look in the eyes of my audience and know that I'm making contact with them. so much of music today is lip syncing and, you know, 20,000 dancers and flashing lights and smoke bombs and stuff. Um, I prefer simpler music myself. I prefer... Uh, being able to sit down and play you a song and affect your heart. Not that, you know, lip syncing doesn't affect, you know, certain aspects of people's lives, but I prefer uh, a more intimate setting. And what was it like for you seeing some of the changes like in staging, you know, the, when the lights came out and all of that? Was that exciting and interesting? Um, reasonably interesting. I mean, we took advantage of, uh, of that in our, in our past. Uh, but the, uh, for instance, uh, the, the sound reinforcement at Woodstock, for instance, was not particularly great. I mean, we were using the best equipment then. 
you know, and the best people to run that equipment then. But uh, it's changed a great deal in the last 40 odd years. You know, you know, it, you you can hear everything. You know, you can have earphone, you can have ear monitor. It's a whole different world. But I still need to be able to look in your eye and know that I'm making a contact. Must be insane to have this career that spans that huge chunk of time, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, and to go back and say, yeah, you know, Woodstock was good when it was going on, but mm, not so much today. <laughs> okay, how cool is it to just drop, name drop Woodstock? Like it doesn't even matter. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, I, oh, yeah, I played the show. You may have heard I mean, of it. I mean, I was there. Woodstock. Did you know I even played? A, just a little, <laughs> just a small set. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the recognition that there are advancements there and they've improved staging they've improved the the audience experience but that in the end graham nash prefers a very intimate concert setting he wants to be able to connect with his with his fans and so i i don't think we'll see him at any large stadiums anytime soon (laughs) right well i mean someone like graham you can you can put everything into the show you know you can put all the lights you can put all the high-tech sound and everything but once you break it all down it's still just him playing his guitar singing a song mm-hmm. at its simplest form yeah so that interview took place at the nam show as elizabeth has pointed out in anaheim on january the 21st 2016 so to uh, jump ahead i'm very pleased to um recognize the fact that um Elizabeth and Mike were both on hand for the second interview on April the 8th, 2017, here in Carlsbad, California, at the NAM headquarters. What was that like for you, Mike? Oh, Stressful. Uh, uh, <laughs> Intimidating. Yeah, <laughs> insanely overwhelming. Um, it, there's really no way to prepare for something like that. I, I just remember getting here and, and knowing we were going to interview him. And, but then when, when, when I saw him turn the corner and come into the, into the room where we were going to interview him, it was just, and he shook my hand and... Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. You know, it's crazy. It's like, how did I get here? How did this happen? <laughs> well, I think the thing that I found so fascinating is, you know, I maybe, uh, I guess I'll speak for you a little, Mike, is Crosby, Stills, and Nash, if you call that his, even the Hollies, too, those his two I- iconic projects, very much before our time, very much not alive <laughs> in the height of that. Doesn't mean I don't know the, the music, but I know when I called my mom to tell her, she just absolutely lost it and was so excited and oh my gosh that's all we listened to in college and <laughs> so it was uh it was exciting on on my front to be able to finally one have my parents understand what I do all day at work <laughs> <laughs> and to have them buy in a little bit so to to see it from that other perspective of someone who grew up with it and it changed their lives in everything it, uh, I mean it's wild just the songs that they wrote you you listen to and you don't even think about just because you know they're such staples right you're so used to them you're just hearing them everywhere and then meeting one of the guys that wrote them it, it's like wow <laughs> <laughs> you're that guy I, I still can't oh believe it that yeah. that happened yeah I know we we're lucky to work with Dan who lets us sneak into all these things <laughs> exactly. and look like we're being busy and filing papers and working a camera and all that stuff so it was a great experience, and he's a very charming person and, and somebody who really connects, as Mike said, to each person in the room. And um, so it was, uh, it's an honor to uh, celebrate him today as part of this podcast and, of course, recognize uh, the great music that he's provided us. So in this second interview, um, we talked a little bit more about what we had brought up the first time, which is uh, music stores, and specifically I asked him a little bit more about uh, Manny's music in New York. 
Like, do you remember going to Manny's for the first time? I remember going to Manny's for the first time. That's where Buddy Holly bought his uh, Stratocaster, so of course. And I, actually, does it still exist? No, I don't believe so, but I had my photograph up there since 1965. Because the first time the Hollies ever came to America was in 65 into New York City. And uh, of course we went to Manny's. And I've had my picture in there for a long time. Um, yeah, incredible. Um, I remember my favorite music store experience has to be uh, Barrett's music in Manchester in the north of England. Because it was run by a family of musicians, but Adrian Barrett, who was our, you know, who was younger, right, than his father who started the company, he would be, he would do things like, you know, if we couldn't quite uh, pay for a guitar, he, he would put it on one side. He would really help musicians to get their instruments, you know, and it was incredibly important to me. And I remember uh, so many times going into Barrett's music just to look at guitars and, and wish that I could buy one of those one day. I have a couple now. <laughs> worked out for you. <laughs> kind of. Music shops are such a, f a fascinating subject. And, you know, if you want to, Manny's is mentioned throughout mo uh, quite a few of our or oral history interviews, as well as Mike created a, um, like, vignette, a video compilation about music stores that you could always check out on our website. And that would be at www.nam.org slash library. And I think it's fascinating that musicians, retailers, anyone who gets into the music industry, even people who end up not seeking that line of work professionally, they always remember the name of their local music shop. Right. Well, I mean, it's where it's where it all began. You know, it's where that spark of inspiration to actually pursue a career in music came from um, or not, you know, or just to the love of music it's it's where it starts and everybody remembers their first instrument the day they picked it up who they bought it from and it, it's crazy and it's cool to see um a perspective of manny's that we don't normally see um which is someone that like he said has his picture on or <laughs> had his picture on the wall there yeah and i think uh it's interesting that most of the stories that come out about these music shops that we've heard whether it's from graham or anyone else in our library they always have some special story from the ownership or the management of doing them a solid, whether it's, oh, you don't have enough money for this guitar, well, pay a couple bucks, I'll set it to the side, we'll work something out. I mean, it's just a quality in a business that you don't really see translated ac across other industries. Well, going back to what you said about how um, most musicians, all people in the music industry really get their introduction at a music store so the the guys working at these stores know what it's like to walk into a music store and really want that guitar but it's just a couple more bucks than you have um so they they understand and they and they want more people to get into this industry because it's it's such a great place to place to be and for those who don't know about uh the iconic manny's dan do you have a very brief 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 history of manny's no. <laughs> okay, I'm going to time you no more than an hour, please. Well, I will just say this. Of course, iconic store, New York, uh, right on the corner where this great um, sign hangs down uh, where you can see it in all directions. And it really sort of um, beckoned people into what was called Music Row there uh, for many, many years. Several music stores were on that same street. And... Um, Manny's, of course, um, 
was really the place where celebrities hung out. And so uh, they had their pictures on the wall and you could go in there and add yours when you made it big. That was sort of a big thing. Uh, And just to have your name and picture uh, next to Buddy Holly and Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and all the others that were on display there uh, was, uh, of course, every kid's dream going in there. Um, There is also a a lot of business that was done internationally. As Graham pointed out, one of the first stops that they made uh, when the Hollies came over to the United States for the first time was at Manny's. So uh, they were able to sell instruments that would then go on to other countries that maybe didn't have those instruments represented yet or wholesaling, for example, in England. Uh, So that was a lot of times where some of these American products got out for the first time of the country. Um, And so as a result, Manny's was also known for having cutting-edge instruments. The first fuzz tone was uh, sold there, for example, and many, many other uh, innovations in musical products. So uh, it was really a hub for a lot of different reasons. And I remember going in there myself and thinking, holy moly, this is it. This is like, wow, this is what I've heard about. And uh, just getting that vibe and uh, and being there in that presence. Uh, of course, seeing the photographs didn't hurt. Um, and I think three hours later, I left. <laughs> so um, had you ever been? I haven't, unfortunately. When And it's closed now, right? Right. When, do you yeah. know when it closed? No, I don't know specifically. I think... Um, I want to say like 2007. Oh, yeah. so fair. I mean, I guess that's yeah. 10 years I ago, but recently. Yeah. Around reality. the time of the recession is my oh, okay. my thought. Makes you wonder what happened to all that memorabilia. I think the family, uh, the Goldridge family still has it. They took out a, um, they made a book uh, that included a lot of the photographs that were hanging on the wall. Um, and I'm sure that book is still available. It's a fantastic read. And hopefully one day destined for the NAM archives, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We can only hope. Uh, so our next segment, we're going to hear Graham talk a little bit more about Buddy Holly, whom he mentioned in the first interview that we listened to earlier. And uh, I think it's a really interesting story about, you know, how connected he felt to him. One of the guys that we would love to talk a little bit with you about is Buddy Holly. I wonder if you could tell me your impression of him. Well, Buddy Holly was one of us. I mean, Elvis was cool, you know, I mean, before he went into the army, uh, but Buddy was one of us. He wore glasses. He wore a suit. He didn't shake his uh, backside like Elvis did or have curly, greased, wavy hair, you know. He was one of us. And his music was incredibly simple. I mean, if basically, you know, if you knew three or four chords, you could play probably every Buddy Holly song ever written. And the amazing fact is uh, that... Uh, but he only recorded for 15 months, 15 months to do all that kind of music that lasts to this day. Amazing. I was asked, uh, I remember um, the day that Buddy died, my friend Alan Clark and I, uh, Alan Clark was my partner who formed the Hollies with me in December of 62. But the night that, that, that Buddy died was uh, actually somewhere around my birthday. I think it was like the third in America or something, but it was earlier, whatever it was. I I was born on February 2nd, so it was right around my birthday, and Alan and I crying our eyes eyes out on on the street corner because we'd lost a friend and a great musician that we could emulate and, and 
want to be like, you know. Uh, 50 years in the future of that day, I was standing in a frozen field in Clear Lake, Iowa, at the spot where the plane went down. That was an incredible circular moment for me. And to play a show at the Surf Ballroom, which was where Buddy played his last show, uh, was very interesting. And to see the telephone that they still have, where Buddy called Maria, Maria Elena, uh, you know, before he, he took his final flight. Um, yeah, Buddy Holly was uh, her heroic in my eyes. I mean, he has to look up to him. He names one of his bands after him, right? Well, that was the partial reason. In 2009, um, Graham Nash admitted that there were two reasons why they named the Hollies the Hollies, one of which, of course, was named after Buddy Holly, their major musical influence. But the other was because it was close to Christmas time and <laughs> for their first gig. So there's two reasons. Well, I guess we're lucky they didn't come up with like the wreaths or the stockings. The or Christmas the, trees. The Christmas trees. Or like <laughs> the merry men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it would be uh, pretty, you know, almost otherworldly to, to look up to this musician and then to be able to get to this point in, this, in your career where you kind of pay homage to him by going to the field where his plane went down and then you get to play at his last venue and just very like meta of it all to be able to really take it all in yeah and just knowing how far he got in his career just wondering where buddy holly would have went from that point you know he did so much in the little time that he was um recording like you said 15 months yeah. which is crazy so it's 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 insane to think of what could have been. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's also very important to point out that um, Buddy Holly to um, folks like Graham Nash and um, John Lennon was an influence on this songwriting too, the simplicity of things like every day and that'll be the day. Things like that were compelling because they were relatable. And I always have been charmed by the role a songwriter plays in our lives. Uh, going back to sort of my first introduction to songwriting was uh, the great Irving Berlin. Uh, when I read about him, there was uh, his rival, if you will, was Jerome Kern, who said that uh, Irving was blessed with every man's ear and heart. And I really feel that way about songwriters who connect with me. And I'm sure most people feel that same way. If they can write something, even if it's simple, in just a few words, if they can express how you feel, then you sort of wish you wrote that same song. And if you didn't, you're glad they did because they expressed your feelings. And the influence that uh, Buddy Holly had on Graham was very clear. I think it made songwriting accessible to him and his friend Alan, who went on to write many, many hit records um, for the Hollies. And I think that that began his introduction to the concept of songwriting. I think that's a perfect segue into the next clip. I don't think we have much more, but uh, just to note, one of the honors that we didn't mention earlier is that Graham Nash has actually been inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame twice as well. Um, once for his work with Crosby, Sills & Nash, but the other actually for his solo career which is pretty interesting. So let's hear him talk a lot about songwriting. 
I would like to talk about um, songwriting and lyrics, and I think maybe a good place to start is your impression of some of his songwriting, because it was, to me, like you said, incredible that it's lasted as long as it has, and I think a little bit has to do with the fact that it's relatable, right? I mean, you can transfer it. Indeed. Buddy's, Buddy's music was, when I say that Buddy was one of us, his music was ours too. You know, uh, things like, you know, every day. Such an incredibly simple moment to write a song about every day. I mean, you know, but he was the first to do it and it was a spectacular record. You know, I often think about, you know, what would Buddy and, 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 and people like Jimi Hendrix be doing today? You know, it, it's kind of astounding what, what they, you know, if they were still around, what they would be doing with today's technology. Be very interesting. Buddy Holly, though, my favorite, along with the Everly Brothers, of course. Mm. Do you have any particular favorite lyrics of Buddy Holly's that jump out at you now? Every day. Yeah. It's a getting closer. And when did you start writing? I think that Alan and I started writing songs about the time we were like 18. Um, you know, I, I, are you a musician? Yes. You know, when, when you first learn the few chords on the guitar, you know, your entire world opens up, you know. And the moment you first play a minor chord, I remember, wow, I remember a story of John and Paul getting on a bus in a foggy night in Liverpool and driving to an area of Liverpool outside of the centre and knocking on this guy's house. And the door opened and they said, are you Bob? And he goes, yeah. He goes, are you the guy that knows B7? And he went, yeah. He says, well, me and my friend John, would you show us how to play B7? This is Paul McCartney and John Lennon, right? Are you the guy that can play B7? Wow. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> and you remember those moments, don't you? Of course. Because yeah. they're momentous. Mm. Seriously, you know. Music comes from the very, the most ordinary places sometimes, you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I talk about this on stage because I think people that aren't musicians are kind of mystified with what it is that we do. How, what were you thinking when you wrote Our House? Well, you know, and, and I, I tell the story of, of, of taking Joni uh, out to breakfast, uh, going back to her car, passing an antique store. Joni looks in the window, she sees a pretty vase she wants to buy. It's an awful LA morning, cold, miserable, damp, rainy. We go back to her house in Laurel Canyon and I get through the front door and I said, hey Joan, why don't I light a fire and you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought today? All I needed was a chorus. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. May I ask you about one of my favorites? Is there a story behind the sleep song? There is. Uh, an argument with my first wife and uh, me waking up in the middle of the night to see her leaving. Yeah, there's, there's always a story behind every song. Hmm. But you're the second person that talked to me about the sleep song tonight. Maybe I should sing it. <laughs> hmm. That's a great dude. Well, military madness, I mean, you know, obviously what these songs represent, what the stories are is one thing, but I also understand that oftentimes there are different 
meanings or thoughts behind? The, there are. I mean, the obvious meaning behind, as Sonny just mentioned, military madness is, you know, dropping bombs on people and shooting them with bullets, right, you know? But military madness in many ways is giving the military an extra $56 billion and cutting all the funding for the EPA or the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities. That's military madness to me. I think uh, one of the things <clears throat> I found most interesting about uh, that segment is when Graham talks about how people who aren't musicians, like myself, get mystified by the songwriting process. And that's spot on. I mean, the way he explains it, the way he articulates it, it makes me just think it can't be that easy. There's no way it's that easy um, because it's not something I'm capable of. Well, I think it's important to say that it is not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's just certain people that it, they're, they're born with the gift of songwriting. Right. Also, it's important to uh, bring out uh, the fact that there are thousands of songs that we've never heard because of the process of getting them recorded and having the right person and so on. So I don't know um, if expressing yourself with music is that difficult to do. I think the whole process of it is complicated and getting it to, um, you know, from a pad of paper to somebody else's ears um, does require uh, a band and, you know, um, for many, many years, a recording contract and all of that. So I think the, the complexity of the process has hampered people from thinking that they themselves could sit down and write a song because I'm convinced anybody can write a song because you're just expressing yourself. Well, maybe we'll just have to have a little songwriting challenge here. I think so. That's exactly center. what I'm saying. <laughs> Elizabeth, you need to write a song. <laughs> oh, boy. That's what I'm saying. Okay, no other work can get done for the next, I don't know, what, six weeks, eight weeks? Mm, yeah. I need to, you should probably send me on some sort of uh, luxurious trip to find the inspiration and things like that, too. It so. probably wouldn't hurt. <laughs> um, so speaking of songwriting, one of the, the next topic that we're going to hear Graham talk about is uh, songs that he felt like Crosby, Stills and Nash should have written at some point. Other songs that people produced, groups produced, that uh, when he heard them, or some of the or the rest of the guys in CSN heard them, that they thought that should have been ours. We should have done it, which I think is fascinating um, that they were able to recognize that and acknowledge that other people have kind of the same ear as them. I don't I don't know if that's the right way to put it. So when you hear a song now, are, are, are there ever moments where you think, gosh, I wish I had written that? Oh, yes. There's many songs that we, you know, there was a project that CSN uh, was involved with a couple of years ago um, where uh, we wanted to do an album of songs that we'd written, except that it was everybody else's songs. It was like a, like a, you, uh, you know, a James Taylor song, you know. We, 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 we would record it so much like CSN that you think that we had written it. So songs that we wish we'd written, it was a project. And we did about seven tracks. Um, and there were some very interesting titles, you know, Behind Blue Eyes, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, I don't think it'll ever get finished, but it was, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> That's really cool. And what is the process for you, perhaps, when, when you first started out with the, the Hollies, um, what was the process of publishing the music back then? We didn't know any of those rules. We had no idea about publishing. You know, we were kids. What did we know? Uh, 
but we did uh, sign a sign um, uh, a publishing contract with with uh, with Dick James actually. Dick James was a uh, English musician who'd had a hit record with uh, with, with a song uh, many years ago, and he had a, um, a publishing company. And the Beatles were with him, uh, you know, and a lot of famous people. So the Hollies signed with him. Um, and Dick James, uh, contrary to most corporate decisions, made a incredible decision once. When we signed with Dick James, I think it was in 63, you know, he said to me, you know, if there's any, ever any problems, you know, just come to me and we'll deal with it. Okay, so now I'm in the Hollies, la 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 la, I'm in there for six years, we have 15, 16, 17 top 10 records, la 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 la, now I've heard me and David Stevens sing, now I want to leave. I go to Dick James and I said, hey Dick, Remember all those years ago when you said if I ever had a problem, all I had to do was come to you and talk about it? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm leaving the Hollies. I'm going to America. I'm going to start a new life. What about it? He said, wait there. Yeah, Maureen, yes. Yeah, would you do me a favor? Would you bring Graham Nash's contract in? Thank you. Puts the phone down. I'm waiting. Come on in. She, secretary brings in my contract and he goes, you see this contract? I said, yes. He goes, you're free. Wow. What an incredible decision. Do you know how much money I've made from songwriting in the last 50 years? It was an amazing mensch decision that he did. He knew he was losing money, but he was true to his word. So that's a great lesson that I learned uh, in life and in publishing. Well said. That's really and then, w you know, we discovered that, you know, with every A side on, on a single, oh, there's a B side. Who's writing that? Oh, it makes just as much as the A side, maybe not as much because the A side gets played more, but the B side makes money? We can do that. And we started. <laughs> One of the... Um topics of an upcoming podcast really should be about songwriting because um, this is sort of just the tip of the iceberg. It reminded me when he was talking about songs he wished he had written, uh, and I had mentioned Irving Berlin earlier. Um, Berlin once said that uh, one of the songs he wished he wrote was Yesterday by the Beatles, and you would never think that uh, a guy from Tin Pan Alley would have listened to the Beatles, let alone uh, admired them enough to want to write uh, one of their tunes. Um, but I think that's the part of the connection and expression that uh, Graham Nash is so well known for that is fascinating about his songs, um, even the new ones. He has a new album that came out in 2017 that I highly recommend people listen to. It's fantastic. Uh, it's chock full of expression, just the same way he's been doing uh, since he was uh, writing uh, with Alan Clark back uh, when he was in grade school. With that being said, you know, Graham kind of left off. He's left the Hollies. He's come to America. He's been playing with these other guys, and they're going to form a new band. And so he's going to talk a little bit about CSN. So when you and Crosby got together and saw, sorry, the right songs together, did uh, did you have your own publishing company at that point? I had, uh, yeah, I had my own publishing company. I, I, it's, I have it to this day. And it's uh, quite valuable, too. Uh, but I knew that when, uh, when David and Stephen and I first sang together in Joni's living room, that, that, that 
fateful night many years ago, um, we knew that something incredible had just happened. You've got to understand, the Hollies and the Springfield and the Birds were good harmony bands, right? We all know that, right? But this was something different. This was three vocal blends making one sound, making one voice, even though it was three-part harmony. And the day that we finished that record, that first Crosby, Stills and Nash record, we knew that it was going to be a gigantic hit. We just, you know, we just knew, you know, and uh, yeah, it still resonates today, doesn't it? I couldn't imagine creating a record and then, you know, the second you rap, you just, oh, that's it. That's a hit. Like, this is going to be huge. Right. I mean, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing that either. But if I did hear myself produce that record, <laughs> I would <laughs> that's say that's definitely going to be a hit. That's a whole different story. <laughs> We should do a whole podcast on the songs that people thought were going to be big hits that weren't. So I think it, it goes both ways. You get very energized when you're in the studio and you think, aha, this is it. But he was right on that one for sure. Interestingly enough, I read later that um, uh, Deja Vu, he wasn't as convinced when they rapped. So uh, not everyone seemed to be a solid smash in their mind at the time. And of course, both and others have come on to be uh, pinnacle recordings so we're getting ready to wrap up this episode uh graham's going to leave us talking a lot about his gear that he utilizes and some of the things he doesn't pay so much attention to when he plays last thing to cover if you don't mind is the is the uh gear that you play now do you have a particular guitar that is your go-to i do um I've always been a fan of Martins. I've had Martins ever since I could afford it when I first came to America. Uh, I still have my Martin from Woodstock, you know, uh, but Martin Guitars uh, did me the honor of making a Graham Nash model. And I play it tonight, you'll see it. And, and it's, it's, they did me proud. Between uh, my friend Alan Rogan and my friend who's my guitar tech, John Gonzalez, uh, we, we put together a design and they followed it flawlessly and they made a beautiful instrument for me. So that, that's my go-to guitar. Very cool. Electric, my 1950 Broadcaster, Fender. And what about Amp? I was never that interested in amps because I'm not a lead guitar player as long as it goes on. You know, I don't really care, you know. Seriously, I don't. You talk to my guys, they, they know me. Is it on? Great, fine. Does it go to 11? Thank you. Any final thoughts on Graham Nash? Well, I wanted to uh, thank uh, this uh, wonderful team here, Elizabeth and Mike, for um, helping put this together, doing the research and the uh, footwork to... Uh, produce this and uh, do the research. I really am enjoying these podcasts and I hope you uh, listeners are as well. And just make sure if you want to check out any of the content you heard today to visit us at nam.org slash library. That's n-a-m-m dot org slash library. Mm -hmm.